Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. The show is about to begin. It's 106 miles to Chicago. We got a full tank of gas, half a pack of cigarettes. It's dark, and we're wearing sunglasses. Hit it. Good evening and welcome to Three Guys in a Flick. This is where we review the good, the bad, and the absurd. Tonight's movie, The Blues Brothers. Beware, spoilers. Coming to you from my basement as always, my name is Don. And to my right we have our comic book guy, John. How you doing? And to my left, in shades, the professor, Ken. Evening everybody. How you guys doing? Feeling good. Yeah. Doing great. Yeah. yeah. The Blues Brothers. Whose pick was this? This was my pick for yeah. a road movie. So your genre was road movie? Yeah. You know, I was thinking to myself when I was driving home, I was thinking, so Ken has two movies left in uh, in his genre. Which two do you have? You We haven't seen your... Period piece and buddy film. Oh, we haven't seen anybody's period piece, have we? No, and I've got four left. No, oh yeah, you had <laughs> Tommy Boy and Blues Brothers, which ironically could have swapped categories. Yeah, they easily. both could be road movies. They both could have been buddy movies. Yeah, so uh, I didn't think w- of, way to cheat, buddy. I didn't think of Blues Brothers as much as a road movie. It, it hits a lot more for me as a musical. Well, if you think about that's it, that's a fair point. But a totally a uh, buddy film or but, a road movie. But Sorry. if you if I looked up what a road movie is, and it's the film genre in which main characters leave home on a road trip typically uh, altering the perspective from everyday life they kind of go on a mission that ends up changing them in the end now the blues brothers i don't think change in the end of this they didn't change at all but they do go on a mission they do uh i think they change a lot actually the other i think they example they, they go to prison for the penguin but there's also and when he first got out sorry john but it's not for the penguin but when he when we'll talk jake okay so when jake came out uh or got out of prison he was the same old jake and then they go see the penguin and he was still being a shit so what does she do she beats him and she throws him out and i know we're gonna get there but um but i think when he has his epiphany i think that changes him when they get on their mission from god yeah do you see the light Yes, I see the light. Now, the other th- thing I was going to say with a road movie is there are two different types of road movies. There is The Quest and there is The Outlaw Chase. This movie, I think, has both of them because they're, they're on a quest. They're on a mission from God. Am I saying that right? God? I was actually thinking to myself, as soon as you said that, every time you say that, I'm going to put in a sound effect. Okay. Uh, so they're on the mission from God and uh, they are. there is an outlaw chase. I mean, they're... Chased by a, a few cops. Yeah, totally fits. Uh, this isn't our first road movie, though, right? No. No. Little Miss Sunshine, right? Little Miss Sunshine. Did we have the same stats for a road movie for Little Miss Sunshine? I don't think we clarified it. I, I, I don't think we did, per se. Oh. 
But well, I, I, I did talk about elements of a sure. road movie. But they were on a quest. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm not saying, I'm not, I was just curious because I don't recognize these, so I wasn't sure if we had talked about that. Well, I thought it'd be nice if we start breaking it down. <laughs> well, it only took us 26 episodes. Interestingly yeah. enough, I think my daughter is watching Little Miss Sunshine tonight, Ooh. right now. Well, that's awesome. That is awesome. But did she listen to the podcast before or after? That's why she wants to watch the movie. <sighs> See, we're serving a purpose. Nice. We're doing public good. Nice. Nice. Did she like it? She has seen it before, but she's no, watching it with I don't her give a, I don't give a fuck if she liked the movie. Did she like our podcast? She has not listened to an entire podcast yet, nor do I think my son has listened to an entire podcast yet. Yeah, well, neither of my kids, I'm pretty sure. No, I take that back. Keenan has. Oh, I can totally see Keenan. Yeah. Joey? What about Joey? I rarely see Joey, so I don't know. Does he know that you do a podcast? I think so. You know what I think Joey and John should do? Rent a big old semi and drive across the country. While I do arm wrestling? Why, why are you stepping on my dick, dude? And do some arm wrestling. <laughs> <laughs> Only if I could turn my hat backwards. You have to. What did I tell you That's about the over the top? To turn on. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> you taught me that. Yes. All right. So this movie came out in 1980. Yes. Yes. This movie was released on June 20th, 1980. What other movie came out right on that same day? Empire Strikes Back. The Empire Strikes Back. Now, Don, is that a good thing or bad thing to come out on the same day as a Star Wars movie? Well, I think it's a gamble either way. But in 1980. Uh, your money had to be on Empire, right? Because Star Wars at that point, I'm pretty sure, was still the highest grossing movie of all time. Probably. So the sequel, naturally. However, the good thing about the Blues Brothers coming out on that same day, or or probably what didn't kill it, was Empire sold out, right? So where does the runoff go? And now you have this movie coming out with John Belushi, Dan Aykroyd, Saturday Night Live is, is pretty popular. You, uh, there were uh, red hot commodities on Saturday Night Live when the movie came out. John Belushi was just in Animal House, who was directed by Landis, which who directed this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, it was a pretty good gamble, and it and it paid off. It was the ninth highest grossing movie of the of nineteen eighty. Piece of trivia for you: What two characters or two actors from the Blues Brothers movies appeared in uh, Empire Strikes Back as well? Oh. That's pretty trivial. Two of them. Uh, let, you're going to have to let me come back to you on that. Well, let me think we, I can on. think of one for sure. Empire? Yeah. Okay. But Look at me like I should perfect. know that. You should know at least one of them. Yeah, you should. Okay, hang on. I, oh, duh. Okay, never mind. Carrie Fisher. Sorry. Okay, now who's the second one? <laughs> yeah, it took me a long time. Oh, come on. It's, it's probably somebody fucking obscure. It's you're, probably the drummer. You're letting me down. Who the fuck was in Empire? Billy D wasn't in... Spielberg somewhere in there? No. This is kind of a cheat, though. Oh, for fuck's sakes. Why don't you Then what is with, it? Yeah, why don't you lead with that? His voice was in Empire. Pee Wee Herman? Frank Oz. Oh. Yoda. Yeah, that's pretty weak. Yeah, that, that's a stretch, dude. It's a stretch. But the Carrie Fisher, that was a good pull. Was it? That's kind of a gimme. Okay, but, it but although it did sec. stump me for a minute, yeah, there you go. Our, right, movie, well, our movie expert here. All right, well, 
fuck me. All right. Uh, like I said, this movie was directed by John Landis. It was written by Dan Aykroyd, and it stars the late, great John Belushi, Dan Aykroyd, James Brown, Cab Calloway, Ray Charles, Carrie Fisher, the Queen Aretha Franklin, Henry Gibson, and the late, great John Candy. This was the only movie that John Candy and John Belushi appeared in together. Isn't that wild? Yeah. yeah. So uh, I'm pretty sure Belushi dies not shortly after this. Two years after this movie was made. Was this this wasn't his last movie though? I don't. No. Think. No. 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 Yeah, no he he, he had like two movies after this, I think. Yeah. One of them was was it Neighbors and Continental Divide? Continental Divide, I thought was the last one. Yeah. Aha! How about that? And then the movie expert. And then um, talk about the the money, the budget. Okay, yes, sir. He's just moving you along. I know what the fuck is going. He put well, you put you put some su- you put some sunglasses on him. There's a lot to this. All right, so this movie was made for thirty million. No, that's right. It was made for thirty well, million dollars. Twenty-seven point five. Really? Bu- the budget of this movie actually started out originally. They wanted to give him only ten million. Twelve. Was it twelve? Mm-hmm. They wanted to give him twelve million. But they the cr- wanted twenty million. Mm-hmm. Landis wanted twenty million, so they agreed to seventeen million, and then they ended up going over budget for a total of twenty-seven million. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. So apparently, this movie was made for twenty-seven million dollars, and it made a hundred and fifteen million. So that, that final yeah. scene with all the military people and everybody coming up—that was three million dollars alone. Was it really? Yeah. Wow. And I guess Blue Sheet was really high paid in this movie. Oh yeah. I can see that. I think he got five hundred thousand. Ackroyd got two fifty. Yeah, which isn't bad in nineteen eighty, actually seventy nine, really, because that's mm-hmm. where they, that's when they filmed it. Mm-hmm. And, and the movie making its money, it 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 made its money uh, international. It wasn't domestic when it was released. It was shall we say very shaded to not white communities. It was released in uh, communities of color. And it was specifically told that it will not be released in white communities. And it was explicit with from the studio that it would not be shown that way. And as a result of that, instead of having like 1,200 or 1,800, it was released to about 600 screens. Yeah, Ackroyd said one of the reasons why, it, you know, why exactly what you're saying is it showed poor, so poorly was the South. Yeah, unfortunately, um, the racism of the white people running the studios, that's the way things went. Yeah. Which is hard to believe in 1980. No, it's not. This this fucking world hasn't changed, dude. It's trying to, and we're all for it Mm -hmm. and we're all with it, but Mm -hmm. yeah. And this production was fraught with many perilous situations. The, uh, the talent that they had in the movie, Aretha Franklin, Cab Calloway, uh, is it Bo Diddley that sings boom, boom. No, that was Cab Calloway. No, Cab Calloway was Minnie the Moocher. Oh, no, no, no. I'm, I'm sorry. Uh-huh, that, uh-huh, the, uh-huh. Right. That was uh, Johnny Lee Hooker. Yeah, thank you. So uh, all of this talent, none of the studio execs wanted any of them. This is the middle of the disco era. Yeah. We don't want all of this has been. We want current contemporary stuff. And they were hard to, uh, to be swayed. But eventually that's what won out was we got our Aretha Franklin are uh, 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 Ray James, Charles, James Brown, James Brown. Yeah. Yeah. Landis held out. He did not want to give up the blues music. Oh, good for Landis. Totally. Right? I mean, I mean, look at Landis's track record. 
So he makes Animal House, and then he uh, makes Blues Brothers. And Animal House is a pretty big hit. I mean, no one expected that to do well. And I guess if you if you ever watched the making of Animal House, I mean, talk about just a total fuck wild set. But can you imagine? It's Animal House. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then after Blues Brother, he makes the American Werewolf in London classic. It re, uh, revolutionized yeah. special effects. Yep. Trading Places, Three mm-hmm. Amigos, Coming to America, and then he or uh, before that he does direct a segment in the Twilight Zone the movie. Mm-hmm. Do you ever see that? Yeah. Yeah. Do you yep. ever see that? Yep. Uh, I believe he directs the Vietnam one with Vic Morrow. Oh. The one where him and the little kids get decapitated. Yeah. For real. Yeah. Yeah. Harsh. Yeah. So I don't know how you bounce back after something like that. But Landis has had a pretty, pretty impressive career. So. But it was a nail biting experience for him to finish this movie. It was supposed to wrap in September. And every day that it goes over, studio execs are like their hair is on fire and then it goes into october and then after october now it's out to los angeles to shoot the final scene yeah and he also had to deal with blushy's drug problems and that you know it was hard to find him did you know that he nicknamed uh blushy the black hole no, I didn't know that. Yes, because every time they would film a scene in which he was wearing the sunglasses, they'd finish the scene, they get set up for the next scene, and Belushi lost his sunglasses. So they went through a ton of sunglasses. Yeah, they just called him the black hole. I can see that. <laughs> That's funny. There were instances, I guess, that Belushi would get so whacked out that one time they had to go find him, and it was, was it Ackroyd that found him at so a neighbor's house? they're shooting. It's in the middle of the night. It's at 3 o'clock in the morning, and they have um, all of a sudden lost Belushi. Where's Belushi? And Belushi would do this sometimes. He would just disappear. And so on a hunch, Dan Ackroyd, he, he finds this grassy trail, and he follows this grassy trail, and eventually he sees a house with its light on off in the distance. And so he goes up and he knocks on the door and he says, uh, we're filming a movie over here and uh, we, we were looking for one of our actors. Oh, you mean Belushi? Yeah. Oh, yeah. He got here about an hour ago. He raided the fridge. He's asleep on my couch. Yeah, he was, he was, uh, he was a really hard person on set because of those things and all of his partying and all of his drugging that he would do made things drag where he would be sleeping or hung over or just out of it. Landis one time said that he came in to the trailer and he sees a mountain of cocaine on the table, like a mountain, like, like from Scarface. <laughs> it's just kind of like Scarface. And so he's just like, Oh my gosh. And he, he scoops it all up and he flushes it down the toilet. Got to be thousands of dollars. Flushes it all down the toilet. Belushi like you know shoves past him to get to the table to get whatever's left yeah Mm -hmm. and uh melandis and belushi they both they both hug they both cry it's like man come on we got to get this we got to get this let's go yeah well i guess at that point it's whatever it takes and i mean it worked yeah it's a it's a fun film and you know yeah it was the ninth highest grossing film of 19 of 1980 comedies in general are very unpredictable for for um profit and it is a big gamble that you're going to be making money off of a comedy and so for this movie to go so far over budget for it to go so far over shooting schedule 
the 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 white the white shirts they were very very scared and belushi's previous movie 1941 the year before mm-hmm. totally bombed spielberg's 1941 totally bombed and so the, the the running joke was john belushi born 1949 died in 1941 yeah and then they watched, you know, that's why they say it when they see the Blues Brothers, because they were not impressed. The nickname for this Blues Brothers movie was 1942 by the critics before they saw it. Have you guys seen 1941? Oh, I have not. VHS. Yeah. Ages ago. I think I, think I saw 1941 when it was on Showtime for the very first time. Mm-hmm. So whenever that fucking was. I would appreciate it if one of our listeners... Suggested that movie so we could put it in our helmet. 1941, directed by Steven Spielberg. Okay, when was the last time you guys saw this movie? I uh, Blues Brothers? Yeah. Uh, probably college, where I watched it over and over again. Mm-hmm. I got to say, I think this is the very this is the first time that I've seen this film all the way through. Mm-hmm. I know I've seen the Aretha Franklin bit. I know I've seen the car with the speaker on it. I know I've seen the end. Uh, I know I've seen the Carrie Fisher parts, but everything else and how it all tied together. I, I, I couldn't remember if I had seen it or not. So I'm going to go ahead and say I hadn't seen it. And so we'll go ahead and call this my first time. Oh, you're a virgin. <laughs> I was. <laughs> we popped your blue brother's cherry. Okay, now you're just being gross, dude. Fuck. I think it's been maybe, maybe 10 years since I'd seen the movie. Maybe not quite that. But yeah. I got to say, watching it again, I was floored about how quickly everything came back just like that. I mean, immediately. I mean, I could almost say the lines verbatim as they were saying them. You had the Ratatouille moment? Sort of. It, yeah, there were there were a ton of lines in here. It's like, oh, I love that. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jake Blues is released from prison after serving three years, and he is picked up by his brother Elwood in his Bluesmobile, a battered former police car. Elwood demonstrates its capabilities by jumping an open drawbridge. The pair visit the Roman Catholic orphanage where they were raised, and they learn from Sister Mary Stigmata that it will be closed unless $5,000 in property taxes is paid. During a sermon by the Reverend Cleophas James at the Triple Rock Baptist Church, Jake has an epiphany. They can reform their band, the Blues Brothers, and raise enough money to save the orphanage. That night, Illinois state troopers attempt to arrest Elwood for driving with a suspended license due to his 116 parking tickets and 56 moving violations. After a high-speed chase through the Dixie Square Mall, the brothers escape. As they walk into the flophouse where Elwood lives, an unknown woman fires a multiple-barreled rocket launcher at Jake, destroying the building's entrance, but somehow leaving the brothers unharmed. The next morning, during a police raid, the same woman detonates a bomb and demolishes the building, but miraculously again leaves Jake and Elwood unharmed. I had not heard of the film technique style, I guess, called Comic Impossibility. And I guess that's what they went for in this movie is that not only is it supposed to be a comedy with a storyline and kind of a realistic tack to it, but then it has that impossibility just like you would see in a cartoon, you know, like Looney Tunes where, you know, explosions go off, but people are unharmed and buildings collapse. Nobody's hurt. 
uh, cars flip in space and you know can jump over a bridge, things like that. I mean, you see how that, like that bridge scene. You saw the massive distance <laughs> from one side to the other, yet all of a sudden they jump and they just clear it easily. Yeah. So it's just, it, when you realize that that's what they're going for, the movie doesn't seem as dumb in those parts. Yes, it doesn't seem as dumb. However, every time something like that would happen, I would say bullshit. However, the difference is, for me at least, these characters are so lovable from the moment that they embrace, I don't care. So even though I find myself saying bullshit, it doesn't it doesn't pull me out of the movie. And actually, sometimes I laugh, which I'm sure that's what it's designed to do. Like when uh, Carrie Fisher blows up the building and she detonates the bomb and the way they filmed it and they all fall down. I thought that was fucking hysterical. And then I thought that's practical, right? I mean, this is 1980. There's no CGI. So they really had to pull that shit off and it looked great. And then when they came out of the rubble, like nothing happened. Loved each time those things would happen. Each time they emerge from the debris, they don't say anything. They just stand up and sort of dust themselves off a little bit and walk off. They never do any exasperation like, what the hell? And then the next scene, their suits go from being all dusty and dirty to perfectly clean again. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's no continuity in this film. And that's fine. That's yeah, I, I love them coming out of the bricks yeah. and then the officers coming out of the bricks. Yeah, and so we, talk, so we talk a lot about on this podcast story and how important story is. This is one of those films where the story is very basic. Mm-hmm. It, it's very, I, I don't want to say thin, but it's, it's, a very, it's a straight line from A to B. And that's fine as long as you like your characters, you like what they're going through, you like the dialogue, and that, that will propel you along. I felt that this film, though a very basic story, was lovable because of the characters. And then when you start introducing the talent that they had in this film, uh, because it's a musical, really, um, it just got that much more enjoyable. So as the first time for me to watch it, I really dug it. I loved the music in this. Uh, I love the style. I like the way, you know, just the way the story unfolded, though predictable, like they all are. Um, yeah, I, I had a really fun ride with this. I really enjoyed the uh, uh, the bit. And, and there's a lot of these little moments throughout the movie that happen all the time. Just the little things that Jake and Elle would go through. He get, they pick them up and they're cruising down the street and Belushi gets a cigarette out and lights the cigarette with the cigarette lighter and he throws the cigarette lighter out of the car. And, well, what's with this car? And they go back and forth about the car. And uh, You don't like it? You don't think it could be the new Bluesmobile? Fix the cigarette lighter. Yeah. <laughs> After <laughs> he just good. chucked it out the window. Yeah. Exactly what you're saying too. This The great thing about this movie is there are scenes in this movie, whether you like the movie or not, but there are classic scenes in this movie that live forever. My my first thought is, you know, every time I think of Blues Brothers movies is I think of the Frank Oz in the beginning when Jake's getting out of jail and he's going through all of the things that Jake, you know, had taken from him and he goes through and he goes, unused prophylactic. And then he pulls out a pen or, a pen or something pen. and picks it up and he goes, used prophylactic. Yeah. I mean, just little things like that you're going to remember from that movie. Yeah. <laughs> Belushi walks right up to the counter. 
And then the guards have to bring him back. So, I mean, right away, he's kind of setting the tone of what kind of character he is. Uh, Yeah, so what do you think? Are they real brothers, or are they brothers from the orphanage? I think they're brothers from the orphanage. I would agree with that. They bonded at the orphanage. Nice story. I like to think that they were actually real brothers. Blood brothers. Yeah. Because their last name is Blues, which was taught to them by the janitor who lived in the basement of Curtis. Curtis. Which who was played by? Cab Calloway. Cab Calloway. Great part for him. So my guess is just because they loved listening to the blues with him, they took that last name. Yeah. I wonder if it's explained anywhere. I like to think that they're real brothers. Well, originally... It it is explained. Oh, is it? The Mm -hmm. script was 300 pages long. I'm sure Dacroy explained it in that. He did. He he went into painstaking detail. He was unsure because he had never even looked at a screenplay before and he didn't know what to do. And so his hope was that he would be able to write and have maybe two movies come out of this. And so he thought, I need to get it all down now. And if I put it all down now, then it will be there as a reference for the future. And it was, as John said, over, it was like 350 pages. And so when it, when he presented it to, I, um, when he presented it to the studio, he, he, he took, took the cover of the yellow pages as sort of a, a, a poke to himself because a typical screenplay is maybe 100, 120 pages, something like that. Yeah. And his is almost three times that. So he presents it with the cover of the yellow pages. Like, yeah, I know it's long. <laughs> so, so then the script is given over to Landis and Landis has to cut it down. And that's why Landis has writing credits as well. In the slip cover, if you will, of the album Blues Brothers Briefcase Full of Blues, this is where the heart of the story for the Blues Brothers movie comes from. And it has a fictitious representation of the history of Jake and Elliot. And it is mentioned that they are in an orphanage together. And the orphanage has the nuns that are harsh and strict and overbearing and and fierce towards them and at night the janitor curtis is giving them soul blues sure and with that they um take a blood oath where they both cut themselves and become blood brothers according to what is read in the briefcase full of blues you know it's funny i didn't know any of that and i probably would have never gone to try and find that but that's exactly the feel I got when they went back to the orphanage. This is where they grew up. And then Curtis was kind of like their their uh, father figure because they didn't have a father. And then, you know, the penguin was mother. But just the way they interacted, just the kind of way they, they talked to each other and the way Curtis had so much affection for them and, and so much love for them. I, I totally get that. And that, that's what I thought when I watched the film. So that's awesome. The nun scene where they're in there in the little desks and she's talking <laughs> to them and they're cussing and getting smacked. I almost felt like that was an homage to Star Wars, that she had a lightsaber and she was just beating the hell out of them with the lightsaber because the way she was floating around and the doors were opening and closing. I love the, the opening force. and the closing of the doors. I, I thought at that point, I was like, oh, okay. I mean, after the bridge jump of, or the bridge jump, of course, I'm thinking, oh, okay, let's, let's just roll with it. That was cute. Uh, an homage to Star Wars? Well, just like, you know, she had that ruler, but almost like it was a lightsaber, like she was beating them. Well, you didn't see that? You didn't think that? I I didn't. Star Wars? I, I, I thought, well, I thought I, maybe they knew it was coming out at the same time. And they were kind of making a joke on Star Wars that she was using the force to open and close the doors and the float and then to smack them around like she was smacking them with a lightsaber. I'm going to have to say no. I did not think of that. Okay. Never crossed my mind. Okay, so I'm just crazy. No, I don't think you're crazy. I just think 
you think about one thing. Okay. He go. He goes. Everything. Every, goes every, back every, to Star every, Wars. every time. Every time he goes to take a leak, he goes. <laughs> you heard that? <laughs> well, you weren't quiet about it, good sir. Well, at least you didn't see the light. <laughs> uh, let's talk about this mall scene for a second. How crazy is that? Oh my gosh! I was thinking to myself, these are the most inept cops ever. I mean, they were. It looked like they were driving to purposely hit shit. Totally. And it and they probably were. And how many times did they pass the Toys R Us? Yeah. Right. But everything they they just destroy this fucking mall, and it's it's funny. But um, I love how calm the Blues Brothers are during that car chase. Uh, Elwood is more calm than Jake. I think Elwood is just kind of yeah, doing his thing. But but he's he, he's rattling off all the different all the different stores that are in yeah, there. I didn't yeah. know that was here. Or the Cadillacs are in, or yeah. something like that. Pier One Imports. Yeah. So the mall had been closed for almost a year before shooting, and so the uh, the production was able to use this mall since it was closed at the time, and they were eventually going to remodel it. However, the uh, the understanding between the two groups was not the same. The, the owners thought that the film crew would clean everything up that they had demolished, and the film crew didn't think they had to clean anything up. And so after a lengthy court battle, it was finally closed permanently and then raised. Really? That's what I was thinking as they were driving through and destroying everything. I'm thinking, who the fuck's going to clean all this up? They I, actually, I always think that stuff. And and are, did they rebuild the mall? Was this a set? It had to have been a mall, which it, it was. It was. And I'm thinking, God. Yeah, it was a big uh, empty area inside the mall that they yeah. used. And they actually built storefronts. And they actually purchased a bunch of things to stock the shelves. And anything that wasn't destroyed, they returned and tried to get some of their money back. Oh, that's smart. So, yeah, they go on their mission. Their mission from God. And they get that because they go to uh, the penguin tells them to go to church. They go to the well, Baptist it was actually, church. It was actually Curtis that told them to go see. Oh, no, you're right. Reverend, you're right. And so they which go. Which was James Brown. So they go see James Brown and you have this big musical number. I was pleasantly surprised to see Shaka Khan in the choir. Mm-hmm. She turned around and I saw her and I went. Shaka Khan. Shaka, Shaka Khan. Khan. So yeah, that that was kind of a, a fun cameo from her. Uh, great scene. You this know. was one of what, I think, two scenes in the entire movie that wasn't lip synced. James Brown actually sang it for the movie. Oh, really? Yeah, he did it live. He did it live, but I'm wondering if they mixed it or did something. No, him on that mic was him doing the song. That's why he sounded, he didn't sound great. Oh, interesting. Know. I'd have to go back and yeah. listen for that. I didn't. Well, I w- what I was thinking during that scene is, is that really Belushi doing all those cartwheels? Oh, Belushi does cartwheels, but. I, I meant I meant the big uh, gymnastic yeah, flips. The ones that he was doing going up and back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The aisle, the main aisle. No, yeah, I don't think it was. And I was trying to look for the cut where it cuts right back into him, mm-hmm. right? Because that's what but, I do. I, I well, look for the cuts. He I, does do cartwheels. I yeah, I, I see him do the cartwheels when he goes back to Elwood. And I go, oh, that's totally Belushi. Mm. I don't know when, you know, of course, people film things out of order, but I doubt it was Belushi in that he got injured at least two times in this movie. One of them was that big desk scene where he's rolling down the stairs with the desk. Yeah, well, that's office. what I thought too. I think he, it is. is that- he hurt his back pretty bad that he was on painkillers. The other one was one of the final scenes when they were filming in the uh, the big concert. He borrowed some kid's skateboard 
and fell off the skateboard and bashed both of his knees that he had to go to an orthopedic surgeon. So, well, so I don't think he did any, a lot of stunts. him. Yeah. I don't think he did a lot of stunts in this movie. Oh, well, yeah. That and cocaine. Yeah. You do enough cocaine, you can do whatever the fuck you want. Cause you can fly. Yeah. And, and that was why it was regularly used because it's like, all right, we got this. We can do this. Yeah. Ackroyd joked. I don't know if he was serious or he's joking, but he said that there was actually a cocaine budget in the, in the amount of uh, their funds. Oh, I'm sure movies, it's probably not called the cocaine budget, but back when the, those were being made, even now, probably mm-hmm. I'm sure there's a budget for drugs. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about Carrie Fisher for a second. Uh, I'm just going to go ahead and say it. I didn't like the character. I didn't understand the character and I don't know why. And I think it's the only time they remove their glasses is when John Belushi is talking to her in the, yes. and I don't know why she gets that treatment. Uh, Dan Aykroyd's character, uh, remo- Elwood removes his sunglasses three times in the movie. Oh, does he? I totally missed it because I've been, I was looking for it. Once. Uh, Elwood removes it when they first go to the flop house and he's cooking his bread and everything and he sits down like the lays down he takes off his glasses oh when he's cooking the bread yeah and there's a couple oh, of, there's a couple of other times i think he removes it when they go to the uh, the tax guy the cook county uh, clerk uh, assessor's office i think they said somewhere he removes it i have it written down in my notes here there's one other time but anyway only thing i got from her is that you know i was joking with my wife when we were watching this movie is that each time there's like a segment they got to piss somebody off or they got to have somebody chasing them. And so when there was like a downtime that we're not seeing the police or the Nazis or whatever, that's when they stuck Carrie Fisher in to be kind of that comic relief, add that comic, you know, impossibility of Looney Tunes. She's the wily e. coyote of the movie. Yeah, I guess. I just, I didn't like it. Mm. Not that it takes me completely out of the film or makes it a lesser film for me. I still enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, I just didn't get her role, and I thought she was pretty. That could have been an excuse just to stick Carrie Fisher in the movie. Yeah, but I mean, she was horrible in it. I'm sorry, Leia. Trivia: What what were the uh, four different weapons that the mystery woman uses against the Blues Brothers? Okay, hang on, hang on. Let me see, because it was my first time, and I'm not cheating with notes as I look at John. Uh, There was the bomb, the detonated bomb. Yes. Flamethrower. Yes. The rocket launcher. Yes. And the machine gun. Yes, very good. Bam, motherfucker. Slightly out of order, but I will take it. Okay, in order. Uh, rocket launcher. Yes. Bomb. Yes. Flamethrower. Yes. Machine gun. There you go. Bam, motherfucker. I read somewhere that they wanted to put Olivia Newton-John in that role. In Carrie Fisher's role? In Carrie Fisher's role. I don't think it would have made a difference Would have made a difference for you? Not for me. Okay. Jake and Elwood begin tracking down members of the band, five of them, Willie Too Tall Hall, Murphy Murph Dunn, Steve the Colonel Cropper, Tom Bones Malone, and Donald Duck Dunn are playing at the mostly empty Holiday Inn Lounge and quickly agree to rejoin. Another, Alan Mr. Fabulous Rubin, turns them down, protesting that he is making a good living as the head maitre d' at the Shea Paul restaurant. But the brothers behave unbecomingly until he relents. On their way to meet the final two band members, the brothers find the road through Jackson Park blocked by an American Nazi party demonstrating on a bridge. Elwood runs them off the bridge into the East Lagoon, and the commander orders a subordinate to write down their vehicle's license plate. They lastly visit the final two band members, Matt Guitar Murphy and Blue Lou Marini, who now runs a soul food restaurant along with Matt's wife. 
The two rejoined the band against the advice of Mrs. Murphy. The reunited group obtained instruments and equipment from Ray's Music Exchange in Calmont City. And Ray, as usual, takes an I.O.U. Okay, so they go looking for the band and they go to that house. And then they talk to that lady and she says, are you the police? And she's, and Dan Aykroyd says, no, ma'am, we're musicians. That's right. And then they go out That's and then right. she comes running after him and gives him the card, which I think is the card to the Mirth Holiday Mouth. Inn yeah. Lounge. And so that's where they show up and they see most of the band there. Right, and, right, and, right, right. Yeah, and they're doing um, a cocktail lounge. Mostly not empty. Blues. Yeah, mostly empty. And then they walk in and they get the guy, they tell him we're getting the band back together because why? We're on a mission from God. Thank you. You're sloughing there, buddy. Um, I just, when I saw that scene, when they went into Holiday Inn and the band's playing, I don't know why, but I had visuals of the Muppet movie. Yeah, kind of. Maybe when it was they their go outfit. The, yeah. When they go to Dr. Teeth and his band. Yeah, mm-hmm. totally. All right, John, trivia. John Belushi, Dan Aykroyd, John Landis. Who do you think came up with the line, we're on a mission from God? I'd say John Belushi. Don? My gut says it's Aykroyd, but the way you're acting, I'm going to say Aykroyd. It is John Landis. God bless America. I was going to say John Landis. Did, did you know that this was a holy movie? Yes. Who who came on set and actually blessed the movie? I don't know. Pope John Paul. He Get was in here. town. He visited the set and he blessed the movie. And then, rec- or it wasn't recently, but I guess in the last 20 years, whatever, the Vatican actually put out their top movies for people to see. And this was on the list because they liked the fact that the two were on a mission from God and they were trying to help an orphanage, a Catholic yeah. orphanage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they used music as the healing power. Mm-hmm. So, yes. How much for the little girl? Yeah. So here we are. They the go, women. How they, much for the women? Because they need the horns, right? And they're, they're, they need, band, the, they need the brass line. They need the brass line. So they go after Alan, Mr. Fabulous, whatever, uh, at this fancy restaurant. Well, he's the keyboardist, I think. That's correct. The horns they get from no, no, he's no, he's he's on the horns. Is he on the horns? Yeah, the keyboard is. He's the trumpet player. Yeah, the guys on the keys was the guy at the Holiday Inn. Okay, he's the one that plays with Ray Charles originally. We're almost there. Originally, the keyboardist. Or are we there first? No, Sorry, go ahead. Um, originally, the keyboardist was Paul Schaefer. Oh, I can totally see that. But and Paul Schaefer is directly responsible. He and Belushi came together, and they handpicked all of the musicians that they wanted for the movie. Unfortunately, Paul Schaefer's contract with the with the uh, the, the station, you know, the his his contract, he couldn't get out of it, so he couldn't be in the movie. Wasn't he, was, he on Saturday Night Live at the time? He was Wasn't making he in the something band? called Glinda Live. Oh. And he was contracted to do that at the same time they were making this movie. Oh, well. So, yeah, everybody else was originally picked by Belushi and Paul Schaefer. And so he was the only, Paul Schaefer is the only one that wasn't their original, part of their original group. But yeah, I loved that that whole little bit. You know, that's one of those memorable, iconic lines. If somebody says, how much for the little girl? You know, everybody just slaps their head. That's I, so funny. I have to admit, I laughed out loud when he does that. And then when he goes back, I want your women. So funny. I, I probably totally made that racist, but that, that was so funny. And them throwing the food into Belushi's mouth. Yeah. And yeah, that was, that was funny. And can you imagine? And he, and Belushi was so determined to, 
get him on board. I mean, that's what it was going to take. We're going to come here every day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And I'm thinking they they can't pay for it. First of all. So at some point, someone's going to have to throw them totally. out, but the mere threat gets this guy to quit his job. And I love when they walk out and the dude, he was harassing. Oh yeah. Turns around and he's all, sir, sir. sir. And the, uh, the horn, the trumpet player is like, fuck it. Belushi was like that in real life as well. His his dogged determination in getting the band together. When Belushi started calling around the different musicians, they all had other gigs. And Belushi, he just he he just wore them down. He just kept calling and kept asking, "Come on, no, we need you. You're the backbone. You're the backbone. We need you." And he got them. And he got all of all of the musicians that they wanted. Yeah. So we have the uh, Murph tones. And now they have to go get their guitarist and another saxophone player. At the Soul Food Cafe. At the Soul Food Cafe. I loved Aretha Franklin in this. She was awesome. I mean, I love Aretha Franklin, she just period. She so but, young. Oh, I know. And I love when she curses. I thought, because, you know, she's the queen. And so I can't imagine a curse word coming out of her. But when they pick up and leave, and she's just like, oh, shit. Go on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they go into her, it's not freedom, what's the, you better think, Yeah, um, tune, and it's fantastic. It's such a good moment for this film, and it, it makes you feel good, right, because it's, it's Rita. Mm-hmm. Well, it so, makes you want to respect her. Nicely played, sir. Uh, so uh, her husband ultimately is going to do what he wants. Whatever. And walks right out, and then I love how, is it Blue Lou? Yeah. Is looking at her and she's all, well, go on then. And he's like, yay. <laughs> well, the thing that I just, I love about this movie is if you ever go back and watch any of those old episodes of Saturday Night Live, this is the actual Saturday Night Live band. Is it really? Yeah. They're not yeah. people that they found. It, it It is the actual players from the band well, when, Pan, when well, Paul Schaefer was the director. Well, the guitarists um, uh, and, and, and the bass player, uh, Duck... Uh, uh, Donald Duck Dunn, um, all of those string players, they were not exclusive to, oh. they were not exclusive to the Saturday Night Live band. They did start playing uh, because they were, by that time, they were already together. Mm-hmm. Um, when they were, when they were uh, um, on, at Saturday Night Live, Lorne Michaels didn't want to have them on. And he eventually acquiesced and he let them warm up. And they got to warm up the Saturday Night Live uh, pre-show stuff. Eventually, he did acquiesce, and they went on as the Killer Bees. And the Killer Bees was a very short-lived uh, skit that only lasted two years. When Killer Bees were a, a, a thing back at that time, it was it was across America, and they did great. After that, they got a gig where they were where they were able to play online or live. Uh, on Saturday Night Live. Then after that, Steve Martin said, I want you to come open for me. And he was red hot at that time. And after that, it's like, okay, you know what? We should make a movie. And that was it. So they get their guitar players and along this, along their way, they're driving down and they come across this bridge and it's, uh, or the American Nazi party is having a demonstration. And I thought to myself, wow, this is a really random thing to put in a film like this, but I guess it's a, it's a, it's a blockade and it slows them down and it introduces us to these douchebag Nazis. And it and uh, Jake says, 
I hate Nazis. Illinois Nazis. Illinois yeah. Nazis. And then they he fucking guns it or goes around and runs him off the fucking the, bridge. I another moment where I laughed out loud. So now they've pissed off the cops. Now they've picked up pissed off the neo Nazis. They have Carrie Fisher hunting them. Yeah. So now they have these antagonists after them to stopping them or trying to stop them from reaching their goal. After all of this, well, they need to get some instruments, right? Mm-hmm. So who do they go see? Ray Charles. The scene where the kid's trying to shoplift. <laughs> oh, and he took down the gun. It was, a, <laughs> I laughed out loud again. Just a, uh, Ray Charles' reaction and how he sh- fires the gun. It's so funny. So they do a musical number, and that was fantastic. Uh, the keyboard guy from Moe's or Murph's or whatever the fuck it's called says, uh, these keys are a little old. And Ray Charles says, no, they're not. They still got plenty of living to do. And he plays a tune and it's another fun moment in this musical. I like when they're playing the tune, you know, Jake and Elwood are kind of peeling stuff off the keyboard and little bits and pieces. And yeah, sell it to you for 2000 and I'll even throw in the black keys for free. Yeah. (laughs) Ray Charles. Now we're, you know, we're a good halfway through the movie and we've seen three musical acts, but we are yet to see the Blues Brothers perform. Oh, I noticed that too. And so with that, they hit the road because they got to make some money to save the orphanage, which means they need a gig somewhere and they don't have a gig. As the brothers attempt to book a gig, the mysterious woman uses an M9A1-7 flamethrower to blow up the phone booth they're using, which is situated next to a fuel tank. For a third time, they are miraculously unhurt. The band stumbles into a gig at Bob's Country Bunker, a local honky-tonk. They win over the rowdy crowd, but they run up a bar tab higher than their pay and infuriate the country band that was actually booked for the gig, the good old boys. Realizing they need one big show to raise the necessary money, the brothers persuade their old agent to book the Palace Hotel Ballroom, north of Chicago. They mount a loudspeaker atop the Bluesmobile and drive the Chicago area promoting the concert. However, they inadvertently alert the police, the Nazis, and the good old boys on their whereabouts. The ballroom is packed with blues fans, law enforcement, and the good old boys. Jake and Elwood perform two songs, then sneak off as the tax deadline is rapidly approaching. A record company executive offers them a $10,000 cash advance on a recording contract, more than enough money to pay off the orphanage's taxes and raise IOU, and then shows the brothers how to slip out of the building unnoticed. As they make their escape via a service tunnel, they are confronted by the mysterious woman, Jake's vengeful ex-fiancee. After her volley of M16 bullets leave them miraculously unharmed yet again, Jake offers a series of ridiculous excuses that she accepts, allowing the brothers to escape to the bluesmobile. Then they get to the bar. The Bob's country, country Bunker. Oh my gosh, so funny. Where they funny. have two kinds As of a, music. Which are? Country, country and Western. Western. Okay, well, first of all, fuck those guys. Second of all, um, I love it. There's a little cage. That reminded me of Roadhouse. Yeah, with the chicken wire. With the chicken wire on it. Why is there yeah. chicken wire? <laughs> And they get in there and then they want to start playing their blue stuff. And then they just get bombarded with bottles and everything. And I'm thinking to myself, all those glasses are breaking and no one's getting cut by any of the glass. Good thing everybody has sunglasses. Yeah. And then I was thinking, well, fuck, they've they've survived falling through a roof. They survived the uh, explosion of the 
um, rocket launcher and then they've survived the flamethrower explosion, glass isn't going to touch these guys. No. Right. And then they figure it out and they start playing rawhide, which I thought was hilarious. And you could tell that Jake did not want to do this. And, but, but when it was his part, when he was doing the duet with Elwood at the time, didn't miss a beat. Right. No. So, but even when they love the music, they're still throwing all the bottles they're at them. They're still throwing all the bottles at them. I'm thinking, God damn, this place fucking sucks. Yeah. It's kind of a bar you want to go to. No, fuck that. All to hell. So naturally, they go and they want to get paid after the gig. And I thought it was funny that he said, um, Here's, your pay was $200. However, uh, you, you boys drank $300 worth of beer. And uh, Jake's like, well, I thought. The first one was free, so we thought they were all free all night. Classic. Classic. You, someone actually broke it down on the internet that $300 of beer back then would have worked out to be about 200 bottles of beer, which would have been 20 beers each band member. That's awesome. Which I think Belushi probably could have handled. I think he could have done 200 by himself. Yeah, probably. Probably. So they have to make an escape because they know they can't pay it. They don't have any money. And at the same time, the real band shows up, which I'm thinking if they had already played a set, then that band was really fucking late. Really? Well, that, and you notice when the Blues Brothers are leaving, when they show the bar, there's barely anybody left in the bar. Yeah. And these guys are just showing up for their gig. You think the bar owner would be more pissed about that? At least a band showed up. Yeah. Well, I love how the bar owner kept saying, well, I sure would appreciate that when he when Jake kept saying, "Yeah, we'll pay you, we'll pay you." Yeah, I go get my checkbook. I like yeah. to write it in my car. Yeah. Traveler's checks. I like to write it on on the glove compartment shelf. Right. <laughs> so they take off, and now, thus pissing off the good old boys, which I never understood why the good old boys got pissed. They didn't get paid. They played their set. They showed up really fucking late. Why are the good old boys upset? The only thing I could think of is their friend, or I don't even know, because the owner didn't even know who they were. You're right. So they were doing it as a favor to the owner I to chase guess. them down. I don't know. Yeah. But Just, I did love uh, all their faces. Yeah, all the faces up in the top of the RV. Yes. As they're driving yes. along. <laughs> so all that really did was give us yet another antagonist for our Blues Brothers. So now we have law enforcement, Nazis, the good old boys, and the bar owner, and Carrie Fisher, Princess Leia herself, coming after the Blues Brothers. The ex-fiance. And then the next scene where they are in the steam room and they're talking to Morty about getting a venue. Oh my God, I love that. And Morty is clearly connected, right? Or that's what yeah. they want us to think. And Yeah, it, but but the last shot is what I really enjoyed. They get up and they leave and you see the rest of the band sitting in the corner all yeah. in towels. Yeah, yeah. And who, who, who played the mob guy? Steve Lawrence, All right. who is a singer, comedian. Yeah, I, I know. I, I recognized him. He was, he's been in a bunch of movies, and I'm mm -hmm. pretty sure he's in a bunch of mob movies to boot, which kind of is why we got that yeah. feel. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> Jake blackmails him. I almost felt ultimately. like he was going to go all Joe Pesci on him from Goodfellas. No. When he you, says, you blackmailing me? Yeah, and, and I think that at this point of the film, it's, it's turning out that everything's kind of working out for these guys. Like they're going to have a happy ending, but um, I knew that he was going to kind of give into him, but 
the part you're talking about, Ken, where the camera backs out or we cut to a wide shot and the whole band is sitting in the corner. That is just fucking hysterical, right? I mean, there's there's a lot of little moments in this film that is just kind of funny and out there. And you could tell that these guys, though probably a really hard production, were having some fun while they were making this. So that was a great scene. So they get their venue and then... They go it, advertising. They go advertising, which, you know how they drive from here to there and get all the advertising done. They had one day. So, but again, they fell through the roof. They survived a, uh, bomb at the fuel tank and telephone booth. So whatever. That was an air raid siren that was strapped to the top of the car. Yeah. I didn't know that. That's funny. So did you recognize when uh, they ran out of gas and they pushed the car to the gas station who that blonde gal was? I I didn't recognize her. And when I looked her up, it's like, oh. I knew right away. But Did you? Uh, I didn't, but I knew. Well, I knew who she was. I didn't know her name at the time. But at the end, when they do the credits, uh, that's Twiggy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when it, yeah. When I first saw it, I yelled out, Ziggy. And then I had, oh, no, 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 Twiggy. Yeah. But I, I like Elwood laying the groundwork for a potential date later on that night. Yeah, if your date doesn't work out, you should show up. I wonder if he ever got that date. No, she, she's waiting. She, it, show, it cuts to her waiting, waiting the there, hotel, but he the is, hotel. but he's They're, doing his mission from God and paying off the tax collector at that time. They should have showed in the sequel, Blues Brothers 2000, that he's married to her. You know, I don't think I've, I, well, I certainly haven't seen the sequel. Which you never need to. Right. That's what, that's what I've heard. That's the consensus of it. I mean, you can't, you can't replace Belushi, no matter how hard you try. And God love John Goodman, but that's a different talk for a different time. Yeah. So the venue is packed and we have the band waiting for the guys to show up and then they go sneaking in. Did you, I, I, I laughed every time they are sneaking in and as they're walking in, they're, they're walking to the beat, you know, they're both yep. doing that little stroll. Yep. Yep. To the Cab Calloway song. Mm-hmm. Cause Cab Calloway is their opener, Minnie the which Moocher. is a great, Minnie the Moocher is a great scene, a famous song. And, uh, again, one of those musical moments that was really great for this film. And it was great how they made it work into the movie. Yeah. And it, it took me a few moments to understand why is he all in white and the, Oh, okay. This is the vision. This is this is what's going on. This is this is what Cab Calloway sees. Yeah, yeah. And it took me a minute because as soon as it snaps back and they're back in their regular stuff, I went, "Oh, okay." So that was through his. Have eyes. you have you and ever seen cool. some original performances by Cab Calloway? If I do, I don't remember specifically. He, he used to wear a white suit with his hair down oh, yeah. in front of his face. Yeah, that was mm. that was classic Cab Calloway. So that's why. Sure. Yeah, exactly what you were saying, Professor. Is that his vision of himself performing old school yeah so curtis comes and saves the day and then the blues brothers show up and we get their two songs and it's fantastic and i love that we didn't even talk about john candy but john candy's with the law enforcement because he's what in three scenes maybe maybe three scenes and so he's there and what's funny is the blues brothers know all the law enforcement's there and they still let him do their they're set. Uh, let's and, listen to them. Yeah, and, and they know that the good old boys are there because Elwood goes in and 
glues down the gas pedal. Oh, right. Glue. Strong stuff. Yeah. I was thinking to myself, that stuff's going to dry up before the guys even get in there to put their foot on it. But did you catch, I mean, I watched the unedited version, which had some extra scenes in it. But did you catch when Elwood quit his job in the beginning of the movie? Was that in the version you watched? No. There's a scene in the movie I watched that he was working at a factory that made the glue. And so when he's quitting and he's telling the foreman that he's actually going to become a priest, and that's why he's quitting his job, they show him as he kind of goes back to the line to get all of his stuff, he starts putting all of those adhesives into his pocket. Interesting. Interesting. So that's where he got it from. You watched the unrated version in preparation for this podcast? Yes, I did. On your piece of paper, did it say Blues Brothers unrated? No. Okay, just checking. But I thought, you know, I'd go above and beyond. That's, that's not going. That, that's not going above and beyond. That's not doing the assignment. But that's all right. It's all right. It's all good. It's like reading, you know, reading the assignment and then reading the cliff notes as well. It. No, you would have had to watch the original first. That was the point. I did watch the original. You did. First. You watched Years the unrated. Ago. No, you did. All right. Agree to agree. Agree to disagree. Oh, fuck that guy. Fucking son, you son, you motherfucker. Um, I watched. <laughs> I watched the unrated version as well. You s- fucking suck too. And I will say that there were a couple of scenes that I rec- that I saw. It's like, what? Uh, oh, this is okay. I get it. I get it. This is not the original theatrical release. Oh well. Yeah, because originally uh, when Landis finished this movie, what was it, two hours and 30 minutes? And he was told to cut 20 minutes, but he only he cut it down to 217, I think. And it had an inter- intermission. intermission. <laughs> uh, theatrically, I think it had an intermission as well. well I'm, I, I'm confident, but I'm not certain. We'll have to look that up. I didn't think they gave intermissions for two-hour movies back in the day. Because it only clocked in at two thirteen mm-hmm. theatrically, so well, not our version. No, not no. the not the version. So and, uh, I, this, I, this this podcast is now null and void because neither of you watched the fucking movie. I watched the original movie a bunch of times. Okay, that wasn't the assignment, but okay. That's like saying if we reviewed Jaws and then I went and watched the unrated version of jaws i would appreciate you telling me the difference no you would not you say that now only because i'm giving you shit our listeners (laughs) would appreciate it what you know what listeners tell us did they follow the rules or did they watch a different movie i think that i equate that i'm sorry to cut you off professor i equate that to watching it on like tbs or watching the real version if you watch it on tbs you get commercials you get dialogue cut. You get the movie edited for time. So I wouldn't die. I wouldn't consider that the full experience of seeing. The but movie. didn't we watch the actual movie, but enhanced with a little bit of extra? It had this. So we watched been, the movie plus. right. But had this been the first time you had seen it, this would have been your first impression of the movie. So yeah, for example, if wasn't. I, but if not, that's not the point. If I had watched, I the wish unread- he would get to the point. Okay, my point, I've gotten to the point. My point was you guys fucking suck. That's my point. All right, moving on. It's because we didn't share. No, I have the unrated version. I have access to the unrated version, but that's not what we pulled. You want to pull this? Well, I think that this is a compelling point for us to look at going forward in the potential of watching movies 
from now on. Do we, what version do we want to watch? The theatrical cut. So th- I think that's a compelling point. Until you find one that you want to watch unedited. No, I would still want to watch the theatrical cut because that's the movie that was released. Unless, um, okay, so if you want, okay, how about this? If you want to put in a movie or if we get a movie and it's uh, called out the unrated version, let's fucking do it. So if you had a choice between Flash Gordon mm-hmm. or Flash Gordon, the in, you know, extended version, mm-hmm. you wouldn't want to watch the extended version? No, I'd want to watch Barney. So I really enjoyed when the Blues Brothers are introduced and they come out on the stage, <laughs> dun, 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 and they're twirling the key. You know, Belushi's twirling the keys and they get out there and then dun, 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 dun. Classic Saturday Night Live stuff, right? Yeah. And I mean, then it is silent, completely silent everybody in the audience has their arms folded across their chests and it's like okay right Lo- love that moment right here is when it became the silent life skit because i went back and i watched some of their old skits and that's exactly how they came out every time for the skits is they come out they're twirling it they unlock the briefcase dan Aykroyd pulls out the harmonica and they get ready to perform so it felt like well, all of a sudden we just jumped right into Saturday Night live yeah and I don't think it took away from the performance. I think it was still a lot of fun. That is what the story was kind of building us up to, right? Because like you had mentioned earlier, Professor, we haven't heard them yet. And so now this is our first, well, second time, really. But this is their showcase. Right, because the first time we hear them, they're forced to do two kinds of music. Yeah, country and Western. So now this is this is the climax, right? So they do their two songs. It's fantastic. It's great. They get a lot of energy. I really like that first song. Yeah, by the they way. won the audience over. They won the audience over. Um, yeah, you know, I, I I love how these two guys they are perfectly in sync. They're not um, fantastic singers per se. The musicians behind them, they know their shit. They know what good music is because they live it. They are the the zenith, the best of the best for blues and having these two guys out front their energy they go with it even though they're not perfect singers because belushi he can keep a beat Ackroyd has a ton of energy up there on the stage and you watch them and they are synced perfectly and i loved that frenetic energy that they both have with their feet and their bodies and they're just throwing themselves around out there even though the voices aren't perfect the way that they're dancing I, I don't know why. It just made me think of their time in the orphanage in Curtis's basement that when he was teaching them blues, that's how they would probably learn to dance, all their moves that they were doing in sync. That's probably where they put that all together. I just see two young boys coming up with all of that. Oh, I, I agree with that. Because 100%. even the dancing seemed like, you know, kids, how kids would dance, you know, spastically. However short their interactions in the film with Curtis were, I felt that love that he gave those two kids. I could see in my head that story and mm-hmm. how it played out and how they are who they are today. Not perfect. I mean, fuck, Jake just got out of jail, right? But I could see that Curtis cared for him so much, and it's such a great, uh, such a great character moment for all of them. So, yeah, yeah. I, uh, the, that first song, you're right. Somebody to love wonderful i just i just love the footwork you know they are just both in sync and it is a really really fun song yeah so they do their two songs and they're gonna make their getaway i love as they're crawling out they look at the drummer 
and they say, hey, just keep playing. We're going to make our getaway. And he's just like, okay, buddy, see you later. I kept thinking, would you want to be a member of the band of the singers just left after two songs? All these paying customers are going to be pissed and they got to get out of there and the singers are just abandoning you? I have a feeling this band is used to it. Okay. So... I thought that was okay. That's probably Just, why they broke up in the first place. Well, they, I think, no, they, went to jail. they broke up because he went to jail and Elwood was supposed to keep in touch with them, but he didn't. Yeah. So they naturally moved on. So, yeah. So they make their getaway. And then this is where it kind of, well, they run into that record producer, which is, oh, right. Which is that classic Wayne's blue, world, right? Yeah. yeah. $10,000. Well, yeah. I'm just going to give you this cash. No contract. Yeah. It, and it was so convenient and it was such a happy ending. I surprised it didn't take me out of it. So, um, <laughs> it just felt, it felt like, okay, how are we going to end this? How are we going to get them out of here? Let's have them meet a record producer who gives them all the money that they need so they can pay the IOU, they can pay the band and they have the money still left over they, to go pay for the taxes. And what I liked about it was after they did the math, they're all, and give the rest of the band. Yeah. Right. So I thought that was pretty cool. So they take the five grand and they make their escape and they run into Carrie Fisher. And again, this is kind of where it went for me. I'm just like, why? This is kind of a waste of time. Um, but you know, you go with it and she's down there firing her M16. She must have stormtrooper aiming because I don't know how you miss it that range, but whatever. And then this is where John Belushi takes off his glasses and he gives her that big, long speech about, uh, I didn't do it. No, I didn't. Honest. I ran out of gas. I had a flat tire. I didn't have enough money for a cab. My tax didn't come back from the cleaners. An old friend came in from out of town. Someone stole my car. There was an earthquake, a terrible flood, locusts. It wasn't my fault. I swear to God. And she forgives him. I love well, it. <laughs> well, he's giving that Belushi eyes. That's when he takes off his sunglasses. Right. Yeah. No, I know. Yeah. And then she's, and so she falls for it. And oh, Jake. they kiss. Oh, and Jake, honey. Let's go. And then he just drops her. Right. Yeah. And then he, they take off. So he, he, they get out of it again and they make their way to the tax collector dude to pay off the uh, property taxes. And who is it that opens the door? Steven Spielberg. One of the greatest directors of our time, in my opinion. Didn't you love the uh, elevator ride up? What was that like? Impanita. Five minutes. The girl from Impanita was playing. Oh, was that was the song that was on? But, mm-hmm. you know, we, we skipped over the, what got us to the elevator. Well, they were being chased by the Nazis for a while, which I guess they had to get special permission to drop that car from a helicopter. Understandably so. Can you imagine, though, trying to do that these days? Get permission to drop a car higher oh. than the Sears Tower, I guess? Yeah, that was yeah. that was crazy. Well, you want your car, you don't want it f- flying off course. Oh, geez, it landed a half a mile off of the space that we thought it was going to land at. And, and I love the little things that they just throw in, like when the, the Nazis are falling in the car, one of the Nazi subordinates turns to the commander and says, I've always loved you. Yeah, so he was a gay Nazi, which I think is appropriate. Hmm. Jake and Elwood race back toward Chicago with dozens of state, local police, and the good old boys in pursuit. They eventually elude them all with a series of improbable maneuvers, including a miraculously gravity-defying escape from the Illinois Nazis. At the Richard J. Daly Center, they rush inside the adjacent Chicago City Hall building, soon followed by hundreds of Chicago police, state troopers, SWAT, 
firefighters, Illinois National Guardsmen, and the military police. Finding the office of the Cook County Assessor, the brothers pay the tax bill. Just as their receipt is stamped, they are arrested by the mob of law enforcers. In prison, the band plays jailhouse rock for the inmates. End movie. That SWAT team just cracked me up every time they go in. So I got to be honest, guys. At two hours and 13 minutes, this ending sort of dragged for me, and I kind of found myself trying to, you know, stay with it. Um, As more people poured in? Yeah, I think we get the point. It felt a little different to me in that you noticed, for the most part of it, you got all the military people and the police and everything. They're swarming. They're panicking. They're all doing their things. And then there's just the Blues Brothers who are still calm and relaxed, and they just get in the elevator. They go up, and they got their five minute wait before the assessor's back. And yeah. it's just it's just funny. I don't know. I kind of I kind of dug that ending. Oh no, the ending's fine once they get things moving, and we stop focusing on how many people are coming and how long it takes to get there, and this, that, and the other. I mean, it, it pays off. And then having Spielberg's cameo, I thought was hilarious. And uh, you you figure that it's going to end this way because, you know, they don't die. It's a mm-hmm. feel-good movie. They're going to save the day and pay their dues at the same time. And what better way to pay their dues is to, than to do Jailhouse Rock in the cell for the inmates. Mm-hmm. So Didn't you like the door barricading? Yeah, yeah. They just grabbed anything and everything, just kept putting more and more in front. I was thinking, that's not going to stop anything. They could probably just open the door that way. Mm-hmm. But they come in, they use their machine guns. And I kind of had wished that the doors would open the opposite way. Oh, so they piled everything up and yeah, then they yeah, just yeah. opened the doors the opposite way. Right, yeah, that would have been funny. That would have been good. So this movie for a long time did have a record for a uh, number of cars destroyed. Were you aware of that? Uh, I wasn't until earlier this evening. Yeah, they, they had uh, quite a lot. It was something like 102 cars or something. Yeah, and what movie broke that record? Well, you know... First broke record, and then it was broken again. It was first broken, let's see, it would probably... Matrix Reloaded. No, that was the third movie. Okay. The movie that broke the record with 150... Was uh, Blues Brothers 2? 2000. Yeah, the Blues Brothers 2000. So obviously, the whole purpose was to break the record. And then Matrix came out. Matrix, uh, what was it called? Matrix. Matrix Reloaded. Reloaded. Were loaned 300 cars by GM. And GM got none of the cars back. They were all totaled. Yeah, interesting. Well, I guess because that movie sucked, I don't really care. Uh, Speaking of sucking and not sucking, John, uh, you guys ready to rate this bitch? (laughs) I think so. I'm a a little, little hurt by that. Professor, how do we do our ratings? We look at a movie's re- rewatchability. If you have a movie that you have walked out of the movie theater and said, man, I am ready to watch that movie right now, you would turn around and walk right back into the theater and watch it again, that movie's going to be a five. A movie that you're going to sit there and want to watch sometime in the future, but maybe, eh, who knows, maybe if somebody else offers it up, maybe you watch it, maybe you don't, that could be like a three. A one is a movie that you've watched once and it's like, I don't need to see that movie again. I have no desire to see that movie again. And I will petition against probably watching that movie again because I've seen it once and I don't need to see it again. And a zero would be, can I get that two hours of my life back? Somebody owes me two hours of my life back. Yeah, 
I like that. And Maggie, Thank you. Maggie got that money I sent her, right? She did. Okay. And what movie was that for? Flash Gordon. Mm, interesting. Yes. Yes, I had uh, to pay her the rental fee. <laughs> you should fucking pay me too. Uh, your movie. My movie. I go first. Yes, sir. Okay. This was actually a the probably the toughest one to rate for me. Because, like I mentioned before, this was one of my go-to movies in college. Every time that we get together and have people over for drinking and hanging out and having a party, we'd put this movie on and we'd watch it or we'd watch bits and pieces of it. So back then, I would say this was a five for me because we would watch it all the time. Going back now that you know I'm, I'm getting up to that you know five o age, getting closer and closer. Um, it, it's rewatchability wasn't as strong for me. Um, I found that there were parts that I just, you know, since I remembered all the lines and I remembered the music acts that I kind of wanted to hit the fast forward and fast forward through a few scenes and get to the scenes that I liked. Um, it's a classic movie. It should be on everybody's top 50 of movies. They have to see, um, Ackroyd Belushi nailed it. They did an amazing job. You know, Landis directed it perfectly. Um, I can't think of anything I would have added or taken out of the movie the way the movie is, except the extended version is a little bit better. Um, but other than that, I just didn't find the rewatchability was the same as it was for me when I was in my 20s and watching it you know, closer back when the 80s were around. So because of that, I'm going to give it a 3.5. 3.5 from the comic yeah. book guy. And for me, that, that translates into... It is rewatchable, but I don't know if I'd watch every scene. You want to go or you want me to go? All right. The Blues Brothers. Like I stated earlier that this was probably, or this was the first time I've actually seen this film. Uh, I enjoyed it. Uh, there were a couple of things that, you know, I found funny, especially for uh, this type of movie. But once I got over a lot of it, it, it kind of flowed and... Like I said, it was a lot of fun. The issues that I did have was I thought the opening was too long. I thought we lingered on the city in our opening shot for a long time. So that kind of put me on defense. But as soon as you see Belushi and Aykroyd and their chemistry and the story starts to unfold, it, you just got to strap in and go for the ride. And I got to tell you that I love the soundtrack. I love the musical performances. Aretha, uh, fantastic. And the movie ends like it's supposed to end. They accomplished their mission and it was just a lot of fun. Would I go back and watch it right away? Probably not. Uh, would I watch it if someone said, Hey, let's watch the blues brothers. Probably. So because of that, uh, I am going to give this film a rating of 3.75. Okay. So a little bit better than average. Respectable. Yeah. 3.75. Okay. So for me, I was surprised after not seeing this movie for several years. You know, I was thinking maybe 10 years. How quickly all of the lines were immediately familiar to me. As soon as I heard them, it's like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, you know, there were many lines that were said that I know exactly what's being said. I just, it just came back to me just you know, like I'd been watching it all along. I guess it's ingrained into my long-term memory. And uh, the the album, they had two albums released. Um, and one of the albums, Briefcase Full of Blues, I listened to that album a lot. And I 
totally dig that album in a big way. And I feel like that it is the essence and the heart of the Blues Brothers that's also captured in the movie. I love these characters. The musical sets were fantastic. And I love the energy that these uh, music sets brought us. And because this movie is so firmly entrenched in my heads, I, I think that I'm, I'm content to watch it pretty much whenever. I think it's a solid four. There you go. Would you give it? I gave it a 3.5. You gave it a 3.7. And the professor gives it a four. 3.75. Oh, 3.75. Nice. Very good. So respectable for the Blues Brothers. Uh, thank you for putting it in the helmet. That was a lot of fun. Man, it still, it still stands up for yeah being, what, 40 years old? Something like that. Yeah, crazy. Math is hard. Uh, okay, now we are at the point of our podcast where we're going to select our next film. We have the Bronco helmet ready to go. Okay, well, whose turn is dry? Did you draw Blues Brothers? I you, did. You drew the Blues Brothers. So it's to you. So we like to announce the genre first. And then what movie? Uh, I like to do it however I want to fucking do it. And so well, we, you might get the movie first. You and do you it however what? you and want. You know what? And if it doesn't say unrated, fucker, let's watch the right movies this time. Well, don't worry. Whatever you say, we'll just edit it and post on. Who will? That's what I fucking <laughs> thought, motherfucker. All right. Here is my road movie. This movie is called Peanut Butter Falcon. What the hell? Is Peter but Peanut have, Butter Falcon. Have you heard of it? Never. It was a theatrical release. It was released in like 2019, 2018 maybe. Shia LaBeouf, Dakota Johnson, and this uh, newcomer kid. All right. So the story is this. Uh, Wait, you want to tell us now? We just need to know it's a road movie. Oh, I like that. And all the other podcasts we kind of... Yeah, kind of give a little what it is. So just for the record, this is going to be another film that none of us have seen. Oh, you oh, haven't seen it either? I have not seen it. Oh, This no. comes highly recommended from my daughter. Okay. Well, here's the big question. Yes, sir. Is there an extended version? <laughs> Fuck you. John, where can they find us? They can find us at our website, threeguysinaflick.com. They can find us on any popular podcasting hosting site, even some of the unpopular ones. They can find us at our Facebook page, at our Twitter page, uh, or they can find us in your basement. So, uh, we want to thank everybody for listening to us, our faithful one listener. I think we're up to two. Oh, we have two now? I think we have two. Yes. That is so awesome. I can't even tell well, you. How do we count relatives? No. So we're back okay, to so one. Back to one. <laughs> All right. So to our one listener, thank you so much for listening. Uh, for three guys in a flick, I am Don. I'm John. And I'm Ken. Thank you, everybody, for coming tonight. We appreciate you coming to our show and take a safe trip home and make sure that you come back and see us again real soon. Have a good night. Fuck, you guys talk a lot. Do you know what we need to start? That's an hour and 41 minutes we're into this. Do you know what we need to start offering on these podcasts? What? Extended versions. You son of a bitch. But that does raise an interesting question. Why would you watch the unrated version? I, I, I would either of you watch it. I'm shocked that you did, to tell you the truth, Professor. I watched the unrated version because I hadn't seen the unrated version. And I was curious to see if there was extra content in there that I hadn't uh, remembered. And, and there were a few little nuggets. 
Yeah. Well, you suck too. Curiosity. Yeah. Well, you suck. I always want to know what extra scenes there are. Not that I'm giving you leniency. All right. Fuck you both. I love you. Good night.